We had a reminder a few weeks ago here at our staff meeting of the season we're in. After our staff meeting, there was an invited guest in the next room who was ready to give flu shots to everybody as we left to go on to work. Maybe you're in the same boat. I've been watching the news. Cold flu season is upon us. And the one thing that all the experts tell us, which is the number one way to prevent or to keep from getting the cold or flu is what? To wash your hands. And it seems kind of simple. We're going to talk about hand washing today. In fact, there was an occasion in Jesus' ministry where he got in trouble over hand washing. And that's where we're going to be in, in Mark chapter 7, if you want to open your Bibles there. Only that the hand washing in Jesus' day that he gets in trouble with is not hand washing for sanitary reasons. Instead, the equivalent of the church leaders in Jesus' day, the, the religious leaders in the Jewish uh, religion, they saw some ceremonial value to washing hands. So it was, there was a spiritual value attributed to hand washing, not just a hand washing, but washing utensils as well as other items uh, as you went throughout your day. So what happened in their religion, which can happen in our faith journey as well, if we're not careful, is that outward ceremonial kinds of behavior, conduct, uh, rituals can become more important and given meaning that, that actually overcomes the, the, real me- the real heart meaning behind what we're doing. So before you know it, the activity itself loses its meaning. We've all been there. You do something over and over and over again, even something really important, and it just loses its meaning after a while. If I were to ask you today, do you have a heart for God? You're here at church. I'm assuming most of you would say yes, but to describe that, If you're like me, the temptation would be, let me tell you why I have a heart for God, and I go through all the things I do. How I go to church, I pray, I read my Bible, I'm kind to other people. So so the the answer to my heart connection with God is often in external kinds of rituals. And the heart for God has to be deeper than that. So open your Bibles to Mark chapter 7. I'm going to read, starting with verses 1 through 7. If you have the YouVersion Bible app, you can go to the events And First Free Church and all the scripture that I'll be using is there as well as a place to take notes. But Mark chapter 7, I'm going to start reading with verse 1. The Pharisees and some of the teachers of the law had come from Jerusalem, gathered around Jesus, and saw some of his disciples eating food with hands that were unclean, that is unwashed. The Pharisees and the Jews do not eat unless they give their hands a ceremonial washing, holding to the tradition of the elders. When they come from the marketplace, they do not eat unless they wash. And they observe many other traditions, such as the washing of cups, pitchers, and kettles. So the Pharisees and teachers of the law asked Jesus, Why don't your disciples live according to the tradition of the elders instead of eating their food with unclean hands? He replied, Isaiah was right when he prophesied about you hypocrites. As it is written, these people honor me with their lips, but their hearts are far from me. They worship me in vain. Their teachings are but rules taught by men. And we're going to explore the first 23 verses in this chapter, but this really is the heart of it. I mean, this tells us everything that Jesus is going to elaborate, that Mark's going to elaborate in this epoch in Jesus' ministry here. It's very dangerous whenever we allow religiosity to take place of spirituality. And that's the, the nut, in a nutshell, what happened here. So let's pull some lessons out of this text that we can apply in our own lives and hearts. The first is, don't focus primarily on cleaning up your life. Don't focus primarily on cleaning up your life. 
Now, the group Jesus was talking to, and he's had run-ins with them along the way, so if you've been with us through this study of Mark, this is just a reminder and a refresher. The Pharisees were noted, these are the religious leaders of the day, they were noted for their intense loyalty to the law. They wanted to follow what God said in his word. They were also noted for wanting to be separate from the world around them so that they could be separate and be recognized as people who followed God. They were interested in the restoration of Israel. That's why they were very interested in what Jesus was teaching because he's talking about some things and they need to understand that. Is this fitting in? Is it not? They were evaluating the message that Jesus had. We've mentioned this before, but it's really important. These, we look at them as bad guys from where we stand because we read stories like this, but to take, take them into our current church setting, these would be like our you know, key pastors and the podcasts you listen to and the books that you read and you go to their conferences and you want to make sure their name is on the bottom of the position papers you read. These are the, these are the heroes of the faith in that era of the Jewish faith. And people looked at them as really, really protecting and guarding us from error. Remember Nicodemus who came to Jesus at night? That's the kind of inquisitive nature this group had, the religious leaders. If there's a, if there's a spiritual truth, I want to know it. And I want to know it, and they add to it. In their zeal to protect God, though, and keep the law, they totally overlooked the God of the law. That's, in essence, what happened to the religious leaders. In zeal to keep the laws of God, they overlooked the God of the law. And we can do that as well. In Matthew 23, Jesus called them whitewashed tombs. They look great on the outside, but inside it's just death. It's just empty. It's a bunch of bones. They hadn't caught what God's word to Samuel was all about prior to anointing King David. In 1 Samuel 16, 7, but the Lord said to Samuel, do not consider his appearance nor his height, for I have rejected him. The Lord does not look at things as man looks at. Man looks on outward appearance, but the Lord looks at the heart. And that, for that specific example to King David, but, uh, but that's a principle throughout Scripture that God looks on the inside. We tend to look on the outside. We tend to look at, judge, evaluate, and even base our life and and associates through externals. Their error was one that we're guilty of as well. They misunderstood and misapplied the Old Testament purity laws. I want to take a couple minutes and talk about these Old Testament purity laws because it's really important to see the impact of what happened here through them. They were not chastising the disciples for eating with dirty hands. What they were chastising the disciples for is they hadn't observed the ritual washing. And the purity laws found in the Old Testament, primarily in the book of Leviticus, cover a wide range of life situations. Matters of sexual morality, diet, contact with dead bodies, treating illnesses, all these things. There were a variety of remedies, typically including some sort of ceremonial cleaning. And so ceremonial cleanliness is not something that was negated from Scripture. They didn't just add this. They just misapplied it. That's what we're going to get to. But let me read for you Leviticus chapter 11, verses 24 through 28. This is just a sampling. If you've read through the Old Testament and through the book of Leviticus, you know you can get bogged down in this ritual religious purification. And here's just a sampling You will make yourselves unclean by these. Whoever touches their carcass will be unclean till evening. Whoever picks up one of their carcasses must wash his clothes, and he will be unclean till evening. Every animal that has a split hoof 
is not completely divided, that does not chew the cud, is unclean for you. Whoever touches the carcass of any of them will be unclean. All of the animals that walk on all fours, those that walk on their paws, are unclean for you. Whoever touches their carcass will be unclean till evening. Anyone who picks up their carcasses must wash their, his clothes. They will be unclean until evening. And you get the picture. It's just all these laws and rules about what is clean and unclean. And when you're not clean from some violation of one of these ritual purity laws, what you have to do, it would be really awesome if God would have explained why. I mean, just put another verse at the end of those, help us to know why that's important. Um, Most of the time he doesn't. There are a few where he gives the rationale behind them, and some have speculated maybe for health reasons, and that might fit for some, but for others it just doesn't seem to fit. So we really don't know all the rationale behind those, and that can be very frustrating. But here's the takeaway. We can't understand these laws apart from the command to be holy. Purity laws cannot be understood apart from the command to be holy. Leviticus chapter 11, verse 44, the same book is from what I read from. I am the Lord your God. Consecrate yourselves and be holy because I am holy. Do not make yourselves unclean by any creature that moves about on the ground. So the first thing to understand I am the Lord your God. I am holy. God's holiness is the basis and the foundation and the bedrock for any religious purity laws that might come. I am the Lord your God. Consecrate yourselves. Be holy. So there's some kind of a connection with God that God calls us to. And that holiness is something that is found in that connection with God. From that... Do not make yourselves unclean by any creature that moves about. If we separate the purity laws from the command to be holy as God is holy, we're walking down a path of legalism. And that's the trap the Pharisees fell into. They equated the Old Testament purity laws with holiness, with God's holiness. That is, if I do this and this and this, then I am holy. Because rules give us something, don't they? Even though, if, I, if I'm honest, I'm not keeping them, but if I can just add a couple more, and if I can't keep that one, let me add one that I might be able to keep. And if I keep that, then I'm going to be acceptable to God. But they miss what's most critical. Here are some samples of what we might be doing today in, in the same kind of way. We might identify church attendance. We might identify charitable giving, witnessing, sexual purity, keeping physically fit, spending time with your family, or other directives from Scripture as matters that could be misapplied if not kept in that context of the holiness of God and our opportunity to be holy because He's holy. Now, are any of those things bad? No. They're all in the book, aren't they? They're all in the book. But when we take those and we say that behavior, that conduct, that act, or things that protect that act, therefore are holy and they help us to be holy we're falling into the exact trap that the pharisees fell into whenever we speak of cleaning up our lives getting our life together before we connect with the god that we've been praising today in our worship service before we connect with the holy character of god and know who he is and know who we are in relationship with him we're going to fall into some kind of trap The Pharisees asked Jesus why his disciples don't live according to the tradition of the elders. 
He didn't dismiss tradition. Jesus was not an anti-tradition guy. We've already heard him speak of wineskins in this gospel, early in the gospel of Mark. Jesus said you don't take new wine and pour it into old wineskins, the traditions. You, you need something new. It's not that tradition is bad. It's just that if tradition molds and confines life, then it's, it's hindering what's really most important. The next lesson that I want to talk about is that we shouldn't rely on right speech or doctrine. Don't primarily think it's about cleaning up your lives. Also, don't rely on right speech or doctrine. Jesus quotes from Isaiah, these people honor me with their lips, but their hearts are far from me. So it's possible to have a good, strong doctrinal statement, to use the best Christian vocabulary, and yet miss God. I think the argument could be made that in Jesus' day, the Pharisees probably had a better doctrinal statement. If you look at it from just what's true about God and who he is, I know that they had a better one than the disciples. They didn't get it at all at this point. It was well, it was Pentecost before they really got it. So if you look just at a, just at a doctrinal statement, the Pharisees, they were doing all right. But it's what they added to the doctrinal statement there. If this is true, then, then you need to do this and this and this and this and this in order to be acceptable to God. The Pharisees had replaced God with a teaching of their own. And that's why Jesus called them hypocrites, by the way, which is really, really fascinating. And that word hypocrites in ancient Greek culture was a name given to actors who played a role on the stage or played a role when they were reciting poetry. We pay to see hypocrites. When I go to a play or I go to a movie, I want to be deceived. I want, I want that person on the stage or that person on the screen to convince me that they are someone they're not, telling me a story that may not be true with an outcome that may or may not matter. But in this, I want them to deceive me. That matters and it counts in acting, doesn't it? What Jesus is saying is it doesn't do real well in the faith world doesn't do well at all. We need to take masks off and not say this is what we have to this is what we have to present in order to be acceptable. Can we talk about what it looks like here? It looks like when you come to your small group, your youth group, when you're in your small group, your adult community, when you come in this place to worship, one of your committee meetings and someone says how are you? And you say, fine, let me put my mask on. Let me put that on right now. Let me be a hypocrite to you. Instead of saying, what's really going on in my life? Instead of, say, because when we do that, we're almost, we're almost saying, let me wash my hands and get cleaned up for you. Let me get cleaned up so I can present to you something that looks clean on the outside. And Jesus is saying, stop, stop with the looking clean on the outside. It's really about your heart. And guess what? Our hearts are kind of messed up, aren't they? Our hearts are messed up and they chase after other gods and they get wounded by relationships and they get wounded by trauma and they get wounded by brokenness, our own brokenness and other people's brokenness. That's what he calls us to do. There's no room for acting in this community. We're authentic, we're real, and we trust Jesus to bring the, to bring the hope of the gospel to us. Then don't rely on your speech or your behavior as a gauge for your spirituality also. Some well-known men and women, some of the most well-known men and women throughout the history of the church have been very honest about their brokenness and their need for God in their lives. A friend of mine recently went to visit his doctor 
He's a very tall man, and he's not small in other areas. And he, he said he had his physical, and his doctor gave him that really, really, really bad word. Said, oh, you've just crossed the line to obesity. And he's like, ooh, I knew I needed to lose a few pounds, but do you have to use that word? And so he's talking to the doctor about it, and the doctor was explaining to him the importance of diet and exercise. And my friend was trying to save, salvage some dignity in this very, very, very hard place and said something to the doctor like, uh, you know, I do run, I do run sometimes. And the doctor said, well, how often do you run? And he dodged the question, you know, not wanting to go there. And then my friend said, the doctor said this to him, I would rather see you walk one half, a half hour every day than not run three times a week. <laughs> I'd rather see you walk a half hour a day than not run. And so my friend said he came up with a new diet weight loss plan. He's going to call it walk, don't not run. But you see what we do with our words? I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to cover myself. I'm going to use my words, the right sounding words, even if there's no truth behind it. And that's what my friend did. I go running. He doesn't run. But it need, it's what he thought would cover him at that moment. Now let's ask the question, how often do we do that? How often do we do that in our community here? I'm going I'm to cover myself instead of being real with you with what's going on. Instead of connecting with you. And you know what? Most of, most of the time, if we're real with each other, what we're going to find is another person who wants to be real with us. And if together we can take the masks off, if together we can stop doing the right religious verbiage and we can, we can just meet with one another and have the Holy Spirit bond us together in our common brokenness and the redemptive plan of God and the mission that he has for us to share his love with the world, it would be an amazing thing. The next lesson, don't let tradition keep with, compete with God's word. Don't let tradition compete with God's word. Let's pick it up at Mark chapter 7, verse 8. You have, to let, you have let go of the commands of God and are holding on to the traditions of men. He said to them, you have a fine way of setting aside the commands of God in order to observe your own traditions. For Moses said, honor your father and your mother, and anyone who curses his father or mother must be put to death. But you have said, if a man says to his father or mother, whatever help you might otherwise have received from me is korban, that is a gift devoted to God, then you no longer let him do anything for his father or mother. Thus you nullify the word of God by your tradition that you've handed down. And you do many other things like that. So there's a long list I could go through, but I'm just pointing one out. And the incident that he points out to them is there was an Old Testament teaching, New Testament teaching. It's very solid that we ought to take care of our family members. And better than in our culture, in ancient Eastern culture, there was a real responsibility for children to care for their aging parents. But what the teachers of the law had done is they had kind of made a loophole that if you could, and this is a Hebrew loan word, this korban, is if you could say, I've devoted all of my money to God, that lets you off the hook for taking care of your parents when they're old. So it's just kind of an exemption, a loophole that they've created to get around a clear command that God gives in his word. And that's what Jesus is calling them on. You've developed a tradition that actually short circuits a very important principle of how God wants us to work. Now, many traditions in our lives are, are harmless. Some are helpful if we understand why we're doing it and we see the purpose behind it and we don't do what the Pharisees did, mix up the tradition with the meaning behind it. They can be very good. 
Perhaps it's nowhere more, important, more apparent than in our own purity laws, those lines we draw to ensure our own cleanliness. Such lines in the history of the church have gone anywhere from restricting how much interaction we ought to have as Christians with those people in the world. Have you been there? Maybe you've been in a church before where it's very, very clear that you shouldn't associate with people who aren't like us. Again, ex- and we usually judge that by what? Externals, don't we? We have a whole list of external things that we see or don't see that help us to know whether we should associate with them. That's not what Jesus wanted. In fact, Jesus was accused of being a friend of sinners in his ministry. And I don't see anywhere in the gospel where he says, do not call me that. Call me anything but that. I am not going to be that. No. You want to call me a friend of sinners? Okay. Because he's come to seek and to save the lost. So what should we do then to foster a heart for God? Let's try to find some solutions in this section. First, develop deep inner spirituality. Develop deep inner spirituality. Verse 18 Jesus points out that nothing that enters from a man from the outside makes him unclean. There's an interior life. There's an inside life that is where we are unclean. And what comes out comes from what's inside. Uh, A metaphor that I've used a lot, if you've been in classes with me or maybe even a couple sermons, you've probably heard it. But if I had a cup of water here and that cup tipped over and water spilled out, I could ask the question, why did water spill out of that cup? And someone would say, because it got tipped over. Technically, the reason water spilled out of it was because water was in it. And if water wasn't in that cup, then water wouldn't have spilled out. And we are really, really good at identifying it got tipped over, the external. And I really don't like to admit that the reason water comes out of my cup when it gets tipped over is because that's what was in it. And sometimes that water is judgmentalism, pride, arrogance, you know, selfishness. I could go on and on, and I'm sure you have your own, your own list. I'm going to read for you a quote from Thomas Akempis in his book, The Imitation of Christ. And it's kind of a long quote, and I'm violating primary rule of public speaking and preaching that you're not supposed to give long quotes because people can't hang with it, but you're an above-average audience, and I'm really confident that you're going to hang with me on this. And I am going to put on the, on the PowerPoint the last line, which is really the clincher. So hang with me through this quote. If you want the whole thing, you can email Robin Harms at rharms at efree.org, and she'll email you my manuscript. So listen along, and then I'll camp at the last statement I make. This is from Thomas Akempis, The Imitation of Christ. A man who is a lover of Jesus and of truth, a truly interior man, is free from uncontrolled affections and can turn to God at will and rise above himself to enjoy spiritual peace. He who tastes life as it really is, not as men say or think it is. He is indeed wise with the wisdom of God rather than men. He who learns to live the interior life and take to account little, take little account of outward things does not seek special places or times to perform devout exercises. A spiritual man quickly recollects himself because he has never wasted his attention on externals. No outside work, no business that cannot wait stands in his way. He adjusts himself to things as they happen. He whose disposition is ordered cares nothing about the strange and perverse behavior of others. And here's what I want you to hear. For A man is upset and distracted only in proportion as he engrosses himself in externals. A man is upset and distracted only in proportion as he engrosses himself in externals. 
Think about that with me. Isn't that true? What really messes me up is when I get caught up in the externals, what people are doing or not doing, I think they shouldn't be doing or should doing, and if they'd only listen to me and stop doing that, or then all this stuff, it's, it's externals. When I'm focusing on the internal life of a person, and this is a good parenting tip as well, when we're looking at our children and we're first primarily focusing on who they are, or children, when we're looking at our parents and focusing on who they are, we, we let the externals be secondary to what really matters. But I get upset. I get distracted when externals come into play. Think about it. That tattoo, that piercing, the lifestyle choice, the political position that a person has, the foolish behavior that they have, the self-destructive behavior. How much of those externals get in the way, keep us from seeing a person for who they are? It's important that we live an interior life for our own good and our own faith, but so we can do this Christian thing well and we can live among ourselves well in the unity and the community of faith, and we can interact with the world well, because then we can take the gospel to where it really needs to go, and that's to be applied at a person's heart, not at their conduct. So living the interior life, nothing external should get in the way of this union that we have in Christ. When that core is tainted, it's kind of like we're, we, we, we're painting a rusty car. The rust is just going to come through again. We've, we've got to deal with and focus and hit this internally. And then we let God deal with the behavior and the conduct. He actually does better than I do in most things. So how do we develop this interior life? Let me give you a few, a few things to think about. First, remind yourself daily of your identity in Christ. I think this is the most important, most effective thing we can do to develop that interior life. Every day, every moment of every day, be, have that tape playing in your mind that you are loved by God, that God has put his affection on you. He's accepted you not because of what you've done or not done, but because of Jesus Christ. And your identity is true and sure because of what he's done. Second, let your life, your whole life, be a prayer to God. Your whole life. Because I can, I can make my prayer time a washing of hands, can't I? You know, I'm going to sit down this morning and I'm going to open my Bible and pray and I'm going to read my Bible and it, just, it may look to God just like these Pharisees, I'm going to wash my hands and then my day's going to be okay because I've done the ritual washing. Well, let's let our whole life be a prayer, a connection with God through Jesus Christ. Then out of that, I can't wait to sit alone with my father every morning and open his word and commune with him. All of a sudden, it's not a check mark on a box. It's a relationship that I have. I can't wait to spend time with him. Next, quietly listen to God. We really do a bad job at this in our culture, don't we? To be silent before our God and listen. And allow him to communicate to our hearts his love, his presence, his holiness. Allow him to communicate about our brokenness, our flaws, our sin that needs to be repented of. Silence before God. And the fourth suggestion Read the Bible with an invitation to the Holy Spirit to apply the truth deep in your heart. Enter into the Word of God. Don't just read it to learn things. Of course we need to learn things. And yes, we will learn things. I've been working uh, with a pastor's wife in another state, going through some things. And one of the things we've been talking about is how to interact with God through the Bible. And this is a woman whose husband's been a pastor for many years. She's in ministry. 
And I had her do this exercise. I said, I want you to read some of the Gospels, but I don't want you to read to learn anything. With that, the goal. Instead, I want you to read this, and I want you to put yourself in that story and be a part of this and see what happens. And she talked to me after I'd asked her to do that. And she said, it was just amazing. She said, I've read the Bible my whole life. I've been a Christian since I was a little kid. But when I put myself in that story, and I wasn't reading this to learn anything, but instead I was reading it to meet Jesus, and I put myself in that story, she said, I saw my Savior. I saw him. And we had a moment, we had an encounter that was real. She said, why haven't I read the Bible like this before? I said, well, join the club. We, we just don't do that very well in our quest to learn and to gain knowledge. The last thing I want to share with you is that you need to devote yourself to holiness on the inside. Devote yourself to holiness on the inside. Mark chapter 7, let's jump in at verse 20. He went on, what comes out of a man is what makes him unclean. For from within, out of a man's heart, come evil thoughts, sexual immorality, theft, murder, adultery, greed, malice, deceit, lewdness, envy, slander, arrogance, and folly. All these evils come from inside a man and make him unclean. No one can argue that these inner sins do not produce consequences. That's not the point. Those are horrible things, and when we do those things in our bodies and in our relationships, they have consequences that matter and that sometimes are long-lasting. Jesus' point is those come from somewhere, and that somewhere is inside. So if you really want to decrease the sin in your life, if you really want victory over sin, don't focus on not sinning. Focus on that interior life with God. Focus on your heart on what the power of the Holy Spirit in your heart working to put to death, not just the external sin, but the pride, fear, lust, greed that leads to that. That's the work God wants to do. And when God does that work, I'm pretty sure my life is going to be more in line with the life that he wants me to be leading. Remember that the Old Testament basis for purity laws was the holiness of God. That's still the truth today. Our, the basis for us obeying is God's holiness, not our performance. God's presence is a protection, but it's a, it's a fierce protection. It's a protection that calls us to be in relationship with him so that we're living out our lives and obeying him based on the internal work of God in our lives. And when that doesn't happen, then there's a correction, but the correction is a heart-level correction, not just a behavior-level correction. And that's where we typically fall off, fall off the boat, even in our own relationships, don't we? I mean, parenting, how many times did I miss my kid's heart? I got the behavior thing right, stop doing that. And it's not that they shouldn't stop doing that, but how do I deal with the heart as well as that conduct? Our performance is secondary to our, our identity in Christ. One of my favorite 17th century English Puritans, Matthew Mead, wrote a quote that I want to share with you. This is in a book, The Almost Christian Discovered, And what he wrote is, it's less evil to do a sin but not love it than it is to love a sin and not do it. I'm going to read that again. It's less evil to do a sin and not love it than it is to love a sin and not do it. Now, he doesn't say either is good. They're both evil. But the point he's making is, when I do a sin and I don't love it and my soul recoils at the horror of just participating in evil and and sinning against my God, I repent and I receive forgiveness. But when I love a sin and don't do it, 
I don't go to God and confess the sin I have done because I haven't done it yet. But in my heart, oh, I'm judgmental. I'm critical. In my heart, I've murdered. In my heart, I've done all kinds of things, but I haven't done it yet. Friends, I think when God looks at that, he's really grieved. He's really grieved. He wants our internal lives to be at peace with him. By the way, the book that that quote came from is a book called The Almost Christian Discovered by Matthew Mead. If you really want to be beat up, read that book because he goes through, this is what the whole book is. It's not a fun read, but it basically says, you can do this and almost be a Christian. Uh, but he's getting to the heart of what this passage is, is really what it means to be a Christian is to love God because God has loved you. That's what it is. And all this other stuff comes into play because of that. Matthew, tw- Matthew 22, verse 30, 37, Jesus said, love the Lord your God with all your heart, all your soul, and with all your mind. If we do that, if we understand God's love for us, and then we respond with love for him, surrendering our lives to him, he's gonna take care of the behavior stuff. Yes, we're gonna have to focus on it. Yes, there are reasons why we do or don't do certain things, but it's gonna stem from a life of love instead of external rituals. Last night I was, my wife and I and and a couple of our kids who came in were at a block party. We have an amazing neighborhood that we live in and we have block parties a few times a year and our kids that don't even live with us come back for the block parties if they can. We were having this full evening and about 9.30 last night I found myself, we were sitting around the fire in our neighborhood's driveway talking and I happened to sit down next to a woman who's new to our neighborhood and I hadn't talked to her much. We were chatting a little bit and so we're picture just sitting around the camp around a fire in the driveway for a block party and we're talking about what house you live in things like that and then she asked the question of questions for someone like me what do you do for a living I had to go there so I said well I'm a pastor and I, I explained a little bit and what she said to me was really interesting she said I think religion is man made I think religion is man-made and the purpose is to oppress people. That's what I think religion is about. And I had her ask her to explain that a little bit more. Help me understand why that's where you're at, that religion is man-made and its only purpose is to oppress people and keep them under control. And she talked to me about her church experience as a a young person, and she's she's my age. She said the church she went to as as a child was all about do this and don't do that and behave yourself here and conduct and God loves you if you do this and, and so we're talking, again this is around the fire and there are a few conversations going but a few joined us and this guy next to me is like yeah and here's what my church, and he started talking about his church, same thing, rule, rule rule, rule, rules and I looked at her and I said you know what I'm going to agree with you I'm going to agree with you I think religion is man made And I think religion is man-made and religion does oppress people and tries to control them. And that's very sad. And then I started talking to her about an alternative to religion. I said, what I'm excited about is not religion because it does exactly what you say it does. But let me tell you about something that I'm gonna talk about tomorrow. (laughs) That we don't have to go down a path of religion. Instead, we can have a real living God who wants to have a relationship with us who sent his son to die for us. And through him, we can know life. And instead of the control and oppression, we find freedom. We find freedom. Yeah, religion, oh man, it's bad. 
Life in Christ is where we find freedom. And she looked at me and she said, that is so interesting. I need to think about that more. And friends, that was just one of my neighbors. I think you've got them too, don't you? Neighbors, friends, coworkers, people you go to school with who think that religion is what we're really about, who think that following rules, and then I have to look at my own heart and I can fall into that sometimes. But what it's really about is a relationship with Jesus Christ that helps us to know God, and then through that relationship, we find the power and the motivation and the desire to live lives that honor him. Let's pray. Father, this section in, in Mark's gospel, it's kind of brutal for us. It uh, really exposes some ways in which we have perhaps missed the boat on really focusing on what's important. Forgive us for ways we have created our own ceremonial hand-washing as a way to be acceptable to you. Help us to let go of that now and to, to lean completely on the work of God through Jesus Christ who draws near to us so that we can draw near to you.